Move on. All right, we're in the book of Revelation. In your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, one of our handy-dandy Bible passer-outers would love to give you a Bible. Just put up your hand and you'll get one. Uh, bring your Bibles. It's a great way to connect with them. And in Revelation 4, let me just catch you up. This is the second week in a series called Unearthed. And what we're doing is we're looking at our life in this world through the lens of the life of another world, a future world. And Revelation is the book that covers that. And uh, we are specifically focusing on the importance of worship during this series. And so last week, we were introduced um, really to this thing called apocalyptic literature, which is what Revelation is written in. It's the reason that it doesn't read like a John Grisham novel, and in fact reads like maybe something you've never read before. It is so symbolic, has good, really good characters and really bad characters that collide together. Uh, a lot of people are fascinated with the book of Revelation because it talks about the end times, which as human beings we just have, I think, a fascination with what's going to happen in the future, and Revelation covers that. Uh, it's a scary book because there are wars and there's martyrs and there's plagues and there's death and things are very, very dramatic in the book of Revelation. Uh, and it is a hard to understand book because it's so symbolic, because there are so many things that don't seem to make sense to us. And we talked all about that last week. If, if you want to be filled in on that, just listen to the message from last week. But what we uh, focused on once we got through sort of how to understand Revelation is we're introduced in Revelation chapter 4, which is really the beginning of the Revelation. The first three chapters of Revelation have to do with letters to churches. In Revelation 4, we're opened up to this revelation, and by the way, it's not called, just so that you'll be the smartest uh, group of people at Mariner's Church, it is not Revelations. Not revelations, not plural. It was one revelation. It always shows somebody that is incredibly sophisticated in the Bible when they call it revelation. Okay, so let's just say revelation. On three, one, two, three, revelation. Don't ever say revelations unless you're talking about something else. Okay, and you can just sort of look at somebody that says that like, really? Come on. Okay, so revelation. It's one revelation, opens up in chapter 4. It says that John looks into heaven. He's going to get a glimpse into heaven, but really what he's getting a glimpse into is the future of what's going to happen on earth. And so really, in just the, the few chapters in Revelation, you get kind of a play through everything that's happened in earth, and it starts in Revelation 4. And what we see is in Revelation 4... Uh, it opens in what is called the throne room, which doesn't mean a lot to us. The throne room, we might think that's the bathroom. No, it's not the bathroom. The throne room in that day and age is where the king was, and he would have attendants around. And just like that, there are attendants all around this throne. So there's all kinds of people that are there. There's all kinds of angels that are there. There's all kinds of lightning and thunder and shaking. There is a lot of commotion. There's a lot of energy as John is looking into this. And then he sees in the middle of the room there is a throne and at first he doesn't say who's on the throne he just says there's someone on the throne and last week uh, we just uh, suggested this is the answer to who is on the throne in your life is the very most important question that you will ever ask or pursue because everything revolves around who you believe rules. And there's a lot of competition 
for who sits on the throne. And the greatest competition usually comes from us, right? We want to sit on the throne. And you all did your neighbor an incredible favor last week when you turned to them and you said, you do not sit on the throne. Do you remember that? That was such a service that you performed for your neighbor, and I'm sure they'll never forget those words coming from your lips. Because as we read Revelation, on the center of the throne is one called the Ancient of Days. And who do you think the Ancient of Days represents? God, and maybe more specifically, God the Father. Father. Right. And then we see uh, the seven perfect spirits on the throne. And who does that represent? Holy Spirit, you guys are good. Okay, you're going to get this last one because we're sort of narrowing it down, right? Okay, so you have God the Father and you have the Holy Spirit. And then you have one who is called from the Lion, uh, uh, the lion of Judah and the slain lamb. And that is Jesus, okay? And so what we have is really a Trinitarian look at what's on the throne. It is God. It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is the one that's on the throne. And last week... Really, my whole, the, the only thing I was trying to convince you of is putting God on the throne is the most important thing you can do. It is what your life really is all about, is putting God on the throne. And the glimpse into heaven just simply tells us there will come a day where that is just as clear as can be to you. God goes on the throne. God goes on my throne, on the throne of my life. So that was the big focus last week. This week, I want to turn the corner and talk about uh, another really important question, or another really important thing to talk about. We're going to talk about everybody's favorite subject, which is sin. So how do you like that? Some of you are sitting here, and you're kind of skeptical on church to start with, and you go, I knew it. That's all they talk about. They just club you over the head. You're a sinner. You're going to hell, and all these kinds of things. So, but we're going to do it. We're going to roll up our sleeves. Literally, we're going to roll up our sleeves. We're going to talk about sin, and I'm going to do it through a series of questions that I want to ask you. And that might make you kind of nervous that I'm going to throw out questions about sin. So let's just, you know, we'll cut to the chase, get it all out, and then you'll be comfortable with the rest of the questions. Just turn to your neighbor and ask them, what is your worst sin? Okay, just go, okay. All right, now that you've got that taken care of, there's nothing else to hide, and let's just jump into it. So here's the first question that I want to ask you. Here's the first question. All right, you guys weren't really supposed to do that. But, and, and so, I, all right, here we go. Can you sin once you get to heaven? Can you sin? <laughs> I love that. Just so excited to answer that question. Can you sin once you get to heaven? And I want to go into it a little bit more, that could be the right answer, that could be the wrong answer, but let, let's just consider this for a second. I threw it out to our staff this week, because I knew I was going to throw it out, and so we started to go back and forth, and some of the people in our staff were giving theological answers, defending their position, and then one of uh, the ladies, Emily, who's not here today, so I can talk about her, because she's not here, uh, she just, she said, I am getting so uncomfortable with this conversation. I have always just believed that once I get to heaven, the sin issue will be settled, and I don't need to worry about it anymore. And are you, like, suggesting that I'm still going to have to worry about this? I'm still going to have to struggle with this? That there's still going to be sort of this thing that rips me apart? 
when it comes to sin, you know, that was just sort of the attitude she had. How many of you would be able to relate to that attitude if, like, today we discovered you can sin in heaven, and it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't. That would be like a total bummer. All right, so some of you and some of you are like, bring it on, bring it on, okay. Um, all right, so let me, uh, let me just give you a, a chance to think about it. What would it be like if we didn't sin? Now, I'm not talking about living in a sinless world where no one else sins, which would also be pretty awesome. But just think about it if you didn't sin anymore. You didn't rebel. You weren't selfish. Think about how different your life would be. Think about this. You'd never hurt another person, at least in kind of a selfish way. You'd never hurt people in that kind of a way. Imagine how different your life would be if that is not a component of it, of either feeling guilty or apologizing or, or just feeling badly about it or having people think badly about you because of what you did to them. Imagine if that wasn't part of your life. Imagine if you didn't have any bad habits or addictions. All right, and, and you know, addictions are the kinds of things that we really try to keep quiet, bad habits, so maybe you're the only one that knows it or just a small percentage of people know about that. Just imagine if that disappeared and you didn't have that struggle in your life anymore. You never dealt with that. There was never, you know, Ugh, I can't believe I am such a loser that I do this. Imagine if that was gone. Imagine if you didn't have the angst that is created from selfishness. So things like being envious of someone, you know, uh, or, or jealous of someone, um, which I can relate to those emotions so much or those vices, whatever you're going to call them. You know, the angst that goes on. Have you ever done this thing? You've had sort of this fantasy life where you're telling someone off and you'd never really do it because it'd be way too threatening, but you run the whole conversation and the great thing is you win every time. You bury that person, you nail them. Well, you know, the thing is, there, there is some kind of sick satisfaction we get from it, but the reality is after you do that for a little while, you just feel sort of crummy, you know, about that. And imagine if that wasn't anything you ever did. You just never went there. That never entered your mind as far as thinking that way. And imagine if there were no negative consequences for the sins that we have. I mean, imagine if all the consequences disappeared. A lot of us are living in a life right now that is predominantly impacted by negative consequences because of bad decisions or things that we did that you, know, you would quote unquote say are sin. You look at it now, how could I have done that? But you're living your life because of that. And imagine if that all disappeared and you had no negative consequences. That starts to become a pretty appealing thing, doesn't it? If we really could live without any sin in our life. So let me just... Uh, for those of you that are a little nervous because I've asked this question, could you sin in heaven? Let me at least answer it partially for you because I can say this with total conviction. You won't sin in heaven. So whether you can or you can't, the Bible is very clear, you won't. And just so that you don't think I'm making this up, uh, and these are only a fraction of the passages that tell us, but in Colossians 1, 27 and 28, um, I think they're on your program. We're not bringing them on the screen. If you're a quick turner with your fingers, you can get over to Colossians. But in Colossians 1, 27 and 28, uh, it says this. Paul is writing. He says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. So he's talking about a certain mystery, and then he tells us what the mystery is. It's this, which is Christ in you. That's the first kind of that section, and then the hope of glory, and we actually were singing a song that had that phrase, the hope of glory. 
Um, how many of you would say, I'm a little confused about what the hope of glory might mean? How many of you would say, if, if you're going to pin me, I would say, I don't know. Because if your hand's not up, I'm calling on you. All right? So, all right, everybody's hands. <laughs> don't call on me. All right, here, and, and then it tells us what the hope of glory is. The hope of glory, it says, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Here's the hope. The hope of glory is there will come a time when we're fully mature in Christ. Uh, uh, and, and what that translates into is you don't sin anymore. You have the righteousness of Christ. It's not just that he imputes it on you and you get it because you're a friend of his and God sees you when he, you know, he sees Jesus when he looks at you. This is you are actually going to become sinless in the future. And it's that time when we get to heaven, we know that we'll become sinless at that point. That's the hope of glory. There's another passage, Philippians 1.6, one of my favorites. Uh, it says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He who began a good work in you. And the idea is that you will be perfected. And what I love about this passage is when it says, he who began the good work in you, who do you think he's referring to, Paul, is when he says, the one who began the good work in you. Who is that? That's God. And so what I love about this is this is a promise he makes based on his faithfulness and not based on our faithfulness. Isn't that a great thing? That we're going to be perfected, not because we're going to finally figure it out and get it all straight, but because God says, listen, you are my, uh, you're my work project, and in the end, you're going to be perfectly made. I'm going to get you back to the way you initially were designed, and I'm taking it on me to do that. So I love that passage. It's a guarantee from God that he'll do it in us, and then the final one is in Revelation 21, 3 through 4. And you guys probably can flip there if you're quick flippers because you're in Revelation 4. Go to the end of the book. And we're told this, that when heaven finally comes, when everything is wrapping up, which at the end of Revelation it does in, in chapter 21, it says in verses 3 and 4, they, uh, in fact, let's, uh, well, if you guys are there, you can read it off your programs. Let's read it together. It says this, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And the good news about that description is if there is no death and no mourning and no crying and no pain, what do we also know there will be none of? Sin, because sin causes those things. And you can't have sin in heaven and get away from those kinds of consequences. So we're told at the end, there will be no sin in heaven. So any of you that were nervous to think, oh my gosh, am I going to struggle with the same things in heaven that I struggle with here? The good answer is, whether there's a struggle or not, you're going to be successful in not sinning. You're going to be successful in being righteous. It's a promise that God makes to us. He guarantees that it will happen. But now I want to come back to this question. Would it be possible for us to sin in heaven, or is that actually just taken away from us, and we couldn't do it even if we wanted to do it? And I don't have the definitive answer, and certainly not a biblical answer, but I'll give you my thought. Can you choose to love something if you can't also choose to not love something? In other words, we know we're going to love God. We know that we're going to choose to follow God. 
We know that we're going to adore and worship God. Are those really choices if we have no choice, if that's all we can do? And for that reason, I think, listen, as absurd as it may sound, and even though nobody's going to take the option, the option will be there. Now, you may push hard against that. That's fine. That's not even my main point. And if you have problems with that, Jairus was the one that told me that. And so Jairus would love to talk to you about that in the future. But here is the thing that actually has more relevance to us. It's the second question, or third question. I don't know how many questions I've asked you, but it's the next question on sin. Is it possible not to sin in this life, on this earth? Is it possible not to? And um, again, um, I love those of you that jump in and give the answers because you guys are like the A students. Uh, but you may not be right on this, so let's, let's talk about this for a second. Let's just talk about it, and we're all good. Okay, so I think a lot of us think we have no choice in the matter. We will sin, and we sort of resign ourselves to sin. And it reminds me of a, a cute little section of the movie A Bug's Life. Uh, there is Harry the Mosquito, and he's flying around one of those bug lights, one of those purple bug lights. And all of a sudden, as he's flying around, Harry the Mosquito gets caught into, like, the hip, he's hypnotized by the light, and he's gazing at the light, and he's, like, in this trance, and he's starting to fly toward the light, and his little mosquito friend goes, Harry, Harry, no, don't look at the light. And Harry's like, it's so beautiful. It's, I can't help myself. And he flies closer and closer, and his friend's freaking out, and finally, zap, and Harry goes flying, you know, out of there. And... Um, Sometimes I think that's how we think sin works in our life. Uh, you know, you answer generally, and I can understand it, where you say, you know, sin's something we're just going to deal with and we're not always going to be successful. But I guess here's the point. Is it possible in any situation where sin confronts you, where the option of sin confronts you, where the temptation for sin confronts you, do you have the option every single time to make the right choice? You do. And really, if that's the case, if in every single chance you have of making a choice, is it at least conceivable that you could live a sinless life? And I know, it, 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 you know you're like, what are you saying? All right, here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. Uh, do you think Jesus, when he was on earth, could have sinned? How many would say Yes. How many would say, no, he didn't have that choice? Okay. Uh, he could have. This is not good. My shirt is a little short, and we do not want to see anything that resembles skin. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for anyone that just saw that, because I know that those are the things nightmares are made of. All right. So, um, so here's what we have. Here's what we have. In Hebrews 4.15, uh, this is such an important passage and the reason is not so that we can prove that Jesus could have sinned. It's to prove that we cannot sin, that, that we really do have options here. So in Hebrews 4.15, I think we have this on the screen. So let's read this together. It says this, For we do not have a high priest. Hold on. Who's the high priest in this passage? Jesus. Okay, just so that we're clear. It's talking about Jesus as the high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Last four words. Okay, so here's the point. Five words, thank you. 
Okay, that was a sin that you just did that. You corrected me in front of the whole church. Okay, so starting from this day forward or this point forward, you're going to be sinless. But okay, that was your last one. All right. (laughs) And Kevin can't count. Okay, so, and here's the point. If he was tempted, what does that mean about Jesus? He could have fallen, right? You're not tempted if there's no chance to fall. Temptation means that there's the option. So he's tempted, and in fact, it says here he's tempted just like you're tempted. It's not like God majorly protected him, and he only had these little tiny, eeny-weeny temptations that anybody could, like, power through. No, he suffered as much as anyone's ever suffered. Not that he, has su- not that he was tempted by everything that every other person in the world has ever been tempted in, but the, 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 the quality of the temptation or the, or the, the strength of the, te- the power, the, the pull of the temptation, he has experienced. You've never been in a situation that Jesus didn't feel as far as temptation because he really could have fallen, and yet we hear this, and yet he did not sin, and let, he didn't go down that road. And here's what I want to do for the rest of our time. I just want to talk about why didn't he go down that road? What we're told is he didn't like pull out his divinity gun and shoot things and say, you're not going to have this over me. What we're told is he dealt with it in a way that any of us could deal with it. When we're confronted with a temptation, when we're moving towards sin, when we're in a sinful habit or addiction, Jesus had to deal with it exactly the same way that we get to deal with it. He was able to overcome it. Are there some things we can learn as far as the power that God gives someone to overcome a temptation. That's what I want to do. And Revelation gives us a huge insight into how this is done. That's the thing that's incredible. Revelation, this book that nobody can understand, actually tells us a huge part of how you move away from sin. So let's look at that. But I need to, before we jump into Revelation, need to give you one other principle that's important here. Is uh, the antidote to sin has to do with your heart. And, uh, you know, that, that sounds a little bit, I understand, like church speak, and okay, yeah, heart, you know, in, we talk about heart stuff in church, and uh, that doesn't make any sense to me, really, or I don't know what you're saying, or it's not very practical, but let me just, let's talk about this for a second. Here's what we tend to do. When I'm moving along and some kind of temptation hits me, very often what I do is I just make a decision in my mind, do I have the willpower to stand against this? And if I have the willpower, I'm successful. And if I don't have the willpower, I I fail. And we just sort of leave it to the moment of truth. We think at the moment of truth, I've got all these decisions to make about sin. And I want to push you back from the ledge. That's like getting here and saying, am I going to jump or not jump? And then the fear of, you know, all I have to do is jump one time and it's going to be really ugly. I would rather operate back here so that I've got a lot of decisions to make before I ever even get to the point where I would jump. To do that, we have to talk about your heart, what goes on in your heart. There's a couple of passages that are important on this. One is in Matthew 6.21. Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he made this statement about our heart. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So back up, and what we're saying is, whatever you treasure, your heart is going to follow that thing that you treasure. And if you want to use a church term for treasure, you could call it worship. Whatever you worship, whatever you treasure, your heart is sure to follow. So if you treasure money, 
If money is the thing you treasure, your heart will be drawn toward things that money can buy. Whether it's possessions or status or security, whatever it is, your heart will move in that direction if your treasure is money. Because money will teach you, this is what I can provide for you, and your heart will say, well, then that's what I want, because I treasure that. If it's status, if what your heart treasures is status, that's the one that falls to me more. I can be trapped by any of them, but status, significance, those kinds of things are huge in me. So I have to watch out for symbols of status because my heart is prone to move towards symbols of status, things that make me look important, things that make me stand up, things where people would say, that Kevin, wow, does he have it together. I really think he's an important guy. Those are the things that my heart is more drawn to. Uh, for some of you, it's looks. And this is such an interesting thing. Uh, <laughs> so men, who do we care? Men, who do we care who thinks we look good? Men or women? Who do we care? Let's be honest here. Do we care that guys think we're good looking? You guys don't want to play because you're sitting next to your wife and you're saying, this is a no win. This is a no win for me. You're going to get me in trouble. I'm sleeping on the couch if I answer this question. All right, so let me just help you because my wife's not here. My daughters don't tell my wife that I said this, but it's women. We care what women think. We want to know if women think we're attractive, okay? That's why I don't want my stomach to show right here. Okay, so women, who do you care who thinks you look good to? Who, who, who does it make a difference to you, men or women? Women, you guys are so, see, you're honest, and you're like, but it's safe, my husband doesn't care. You know what, we all think that what women think about us is the most important thing. So, if looks is your thing, you're looking toward women all the time to say, dude, does that woman think that I'm cute? Does that woman think that I look good? Is that woman jealous of me because I look so hot? You know, whatever it is, that's what we're doing. Okay, so he, the point is made, is that whatever we treasure, our heart follows, okay? So we've got to start thinking about what are we treasuring. Then there's one other thing that is important to say about the heart. Proverbs 4.23, it says this, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So here's the thing that we're going to learn. Wherever our heart is, okay, so our heart follows what we treasure, but wherever our heart is, uh, is where our life is eventually going to go because our heart dictates all decisions we make, the perspectives we have, uh, you know, the, the priorities that we set. All those things come out of our heart. So here's the thing that really this is saying, with the heart as the middle ground, whatever you worship or treasure will run through your heart and eventually your life will go there. You will become like the thing that you worship. Whatever you worship is going to draw you toward itself so that eventually you start molding into the image of this thing that you worship. And, uh, you know, while it took me a second to get there, you guys will say intuitively, I know it's true. Somebody who worships money, you just watch their life for a while, and it's not a surprise to you. And in fact, you would be able to say, I know what is a huge priority. Maybe you wouldn't use the term worship. I know what's a huge treasure in that person's life. It's money. Because I see it like in every decision that this guy makes. I see it in the way that he carries himself. I see it in the priorities that he sets. Money is it. Or if it's status. Or if it's looks. Or even if it's family. You start to say, because it goes this way. Whatever you treasure, your heart is drawn toward. And whatever your heart's drawn toward, it makes decisions and sets priorities so that your life follows in it. So you start to understand that what we worship, what we treasure, becomes 
a predominant factor on the direction our life goes. What we worship is where we move, and we become like that thing. So in Revelation 9, 20, and 21, we see an example of people worshiping the wrong thing. Okay, and just in this passage, just to set it up, there's been a series of plagues on the earth. A lot of people have died. There's all kinds of commotion. And then it makes this really interesting statement. It says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. And here's simply what that statement is saying. Saying for such a long time, they prioritized, they worshipped, they valued this, their heart was drawn toward it, their life flowed in a direction toward it. So even though a super negative consequence happens, in other words, it becomes really clear that God rules, that sin is going to be punished, that if you're not on his team, it's going to be bad for you. And then you get this amazing statement that people still are not turning around. This track is so strong in their life that they continue to just move in this direction, even though at this point it is so counterproductive for happiness in their life. It is so obvious. And you think, well, that could never happen. That just, that's not real life. People aren't like that. You guys seen the interview that Whitney Houston had with Diane Sawyer 10 years ago? They've been playing these things a lot. And let me just tell you, from what Whitney Houston says, I believe she's in heaven. I believe she, she struggled, but I think that she loved Jesus. But what is so fascinating about the interview is she talks about her struggle with drugs and her struggle with the lifestyle that was pushing her in the direction and her desire to move out of that. The thing that's fascinating is she says, I don't think drugs are a problem for me anymore People tell us she was high as she was saying that. That track is really strong. Once you decide, this is what I value, this is what I treasure, this is how my heart is conformed, my life follows what my heart does. Once that track is established, it is really hard to break. And it never will get broken just in changing your life. And it really doesn't get broken just in changing your heart. You know how it gets broken? It gets broken when we change what we treasure, when we start to change the things that we treasure. And so uh, one of the things in Romans 12 that Paul tells us about the importance of worship, about treasuring certain things, he says this, and this is going to be familiar to some of you, and we're actually going to look at it in a lot more detail next week because it brings out another point. But in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul writes this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is what you are to treasure. This is how you're to live and treasure these things. And then he says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And simply Paul is telling us that when you start to treasure something new, that your heart or your mind, it starts to be transformed. It starts to change. It starts to move in a different direction. 
and your life becomes a living sacrifice at that point and you start living in a totally different way because what you have valued has had an impact on what your heart is becoming and God is now transforming your heart and changing your heart and eventually your behaviors and your attitudes and everything else follows after that. And so the question of how could Jesus possibly have not sinned with all the temptation that he faced? He didn't fight every battle here where it was the moment of truth. And he didn't even work on it totally just with his heart right here. What he did is he decided, this is what I'm going to treasure. This is what's going to be most important to me. This is who's going to sit on the center throne of my life. I'm organizing my life around it. I'm thinking about that. That is what my life is going to be about. And lo and behold, his heart becomes different, conformed, transformed. It starts to change. And now just his behaviors come right out of that heart. If we're interested, if there's something in you that says, I would just love to move in a direction of not falling to temptation, not falling to sin, here's the point. Worship is the antidote. It is what you treasure. And it starts in here, you know, we do worship in here. And we call this a worship service and we call the singing worship. And it is worship. It's great. But it certainly is not enough. It's got to be throughout your week. You've got to do it all the time because your heart is being molded all the time. And the more you treasure the things that are of God and the more you put him in the center, the more your heart transforms that direction, the more your actions move in that way. And here's what I believe. When we get to heaven, when we get to heaven, we will be so treasuring God he will be such the focus of our life. Our hearts will be so filled with him that while it might be technically possible for us to rebel, we would never choose to. We just would never, ever do it. But the lesson from Revelation is that's possible now. We don't have to wait for heaven if we will worship. Now, next week, what I want to do is I want to talk about, so what is worship then? How do we do that during our week? What does that look like in a practical way? But let me just say this as we stop for today. Any moment, in any day, in any circumstance, at any time, you can treasure God. You can worship God. You can right-size things and value him. You can do it at any time. And here's, here's the question for you. How do you do that? How does that happen in your life? Does it help if you read the Bible more? If it does, you'd be foolish not to read the Bible more. Does it help if you pray and maybe have some kind of routine that's a regular one, but you try to remember to pray throughout the day? If that is something that helps you value and worship God, you'd be foolish not to. Is it music in your car? that gets you focused, you'd be foolish if you don't. If it, is it walks on the beach, like you said, seeing the sunsets, watching the mountains, is it being out in nature? Do you organize your life so that those things occur? Because the bottom line is, if you want your life to go in the direction God says, he says, worship me then, value me. And you'll start dropping off these behaviors that are over here because your heart will change. Uh, let's stand for prayer, and then we're going to move right into a time of worship. But I want to pray for all of us.
And uh, these are challenges for me, just so you know. I'm challenged in this as much as you are. Let's, let's pray. And then after that, we are going to spend a little time worshiping. And I want to just tell you, church, this is our chance. This is our chance to, to just show Jesus, you know what? You are on the center of my throne. So, you know, let's not be passive. Let's not hold back. Let's give our lives. Let's, let's really say, hey, we're going to treasure you over the next few minutes as we corporately do this because that's what makes a church a Christ-following church. Lord, we stand here, and there's a lot of things we've talked about. The reality is, Lord, none of us want to fall to the problems and the troubles of sin, and all of us know all too well what that looks like. And Lord, you've promised us in the future a day will come where we are so transformed, where our heart is so different, that we won't sin. We will be mature, lacking in nothing. And yet, all of us can relate to the pressures and the tensions that we face on a day-to-day basis. Help us, Lord, to focus on treasuring you. Jesus, you, you deserve being treasured. Father, you deserve it. So do you, Spirit. And we just pray that you'd help us to do that in a way that would impact us in the most significant way. Lord, make this a week where this happens. And now, Jesus, we ask that you would accept this worship that we're about to give you.